0: I'm uh, aware of the fact that one of the roles of preaching, as uh, the Apostle Peter says it in Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, is to feed the flock of God, and uh, I find that an awesome responsibility, uh, especially uh, at this time in my life when the uh, my thought patterns aren't as fluid as they used to be. And, uh, and so I, uh, I, I really need what my brother Andy used to say, a double portion of his spirit as I minister to you this morning. And so uh, would you continue to pray as we look into God's word? I'd like to begin this morning by uh, introducing you to a, 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 a new word uh, that might be new for many of you. And uh, uh, this word is syncretism, syncretism. <laughs> um, and uh, the, uh, the simple definition for syncretism as it relates to the book of Galatians is that it, it means to mix things together. It's a big word to, that means to mix to mix things together uh, and especially to mix things together that don't naturally mix together. Um, Webster, I find it interesting that Webster's primary definition for syncretism is the combining or reconciliation of differing beliefs in religion. Now that, so that really brings us to uh, uh, the, the, the book of Galatians. Um, when, when I was in El Salvador back in the 60s, I uh, uh, partway through our two years of service, John Glick and I went to uh, Guatemala, to a little town in the outlying area of Guatemala, in the mountain area of Guatemala, called Um and uh, uh, Chichicastanango was sort of the center of uh, of the uh, of, of an ancient tribe of people uh, there, and um, and so one morning when um, uh, we were in Chichicastanango, early morning, I I left our room where we we're staying, and I made, way, made my way out, uh, outside of town, up uh, a tall hill. Uh, to the top of a hill and uh, in, in the very early mo- hours of the morning, uh, there were some of the uh, Indian people there uh, worshiping their gods. And uh, so I stood there behind a tree and uh, observed the, uh, the, the worshiping that was going on on top of the hill, it reminded me of the high places that spoken of in, in, uh, in scripture about uh, in Israel. And, and um, but uh, I noticed a man who was uh, not too far from me uh, that was uh, offering a sacrifice. And, and he was doing this in front of a little concave uh, where there was uh, an idol representing uh, uh, the God that he worshipped. But the interesting thing is that right beside that idol was a cross. And so here you have an example of syncretism where, where uh, because these people had been uh, proselyzed in, into the Catholic Church, uh, he, uh, he, was, he was still worshiping his uh, idol along with uh, the symbol of Christianity there uh, along with Christianity. Well, that's an example of syncretism um, after Ed and I were in northwestern Ontario for a number of years, uh, I became aware of how, how important it was to constantly and clearly attempt to preach the basic truth of the gospel because uh, it, it was easy for the First Nations people uh, of that area to mix the gospel with their ancient animistic religion. Well, that was another example of syncretism, uh, the the mixing of uh, different belief systems together. Well, the Judaizers uh, were guilty of syncretism uh, in that they were preaching a gospel that mixed law and grace, as we've noticed before. Uh, They, in essence, declared that, yes, you must believe in Jesus, But you are not only saved by your faith in Christ alone. You must also do the works of the law and carry out certain ceremonies related to the law, especially the ceremony of circumcision. This was, again, a subtle and not so subtle uh, uh, kind of syncretism, mixing law and grace. The the tragic thing was that the Galatian Christians were falling for this false gospel, or false way, as the psalmist would have put it. As it relates to this matter of uh, law and grace, um, and understanding uh, the difference between law and grace, encourage you to think uh, deeply about that. I I want to read a little story uh, from H.A. Ironside's commentary on the book of Galatians, which uh, I found a rather interesting uh, story that maybe uh, explains this matter of understanding law and grace. Some years ago, I took with me to Oakland, California, a Navajo Indian. One Sunday evening, he went to our young people's meeting. They were talking about the epistle to the Galatians about law and grace. But they were not very clear about it, and finally one turned to the Indian and said, I wonder whether our Indian friend has anything to say about this. And I find this so interesting because it's so typical. Uh, the way he explains it is very typical of First Nations people. He rose to his feet and said, well, my friends, I have been listening very carefully because I am here to learn all I can in order to take it back to my people. I do not, un- I do not understand what you are talking about, and I do not think that you do yourself. Very straightforward. But concerning this law and grace, Let me see if I can make it clear. I think it's like this. When Mr. Ironside brought me from my home, we took the longest railroad journey I ever took. We got out here to Barstow, and there I saw the most beautiful railroad station with a hotel uh, built on top of it. I walked all around and saw at one end of this hotel a sign, Do not spit here. I looked at that sign, and then looked down at the ground, and saw many people had spit it. And before I knew what I was doing, I spit it myself. (laughs) Isn't that strange when the sign says, don't spit here? I, I came to Oakland and got to the home of the lady who invited me to dinner today, and, and I'm in the nicest home I have ever seen, been in, in my life. Such beautiful furniture and carpets, I hate to step on them. I sank into a comfortable chair, and the lady said, Now, John, you sit there while I go out and see whether the maid has dinner ready. I looked around at the beautiful pictures, at the grand piano, and I walked all around this room, and I am looking for a sign, and the sign that says, don't spit here. But I don't, but I can't find a sign like this. I think, what a pity, when this is such a beautiful home to have people spitting all over it, because there's no sign that says, don't spit here. So I look all over that carpet, but cannot find that anybody has spit it here. What a queer thing. Where the sign says, do not spit, a lot of people spit it. Here where there is no sign, nobody spit it. Now I understand. That sign is law. But inside the home, it is grace. They love their beautiful home and want to keep it clean. I think that explains this law and grace business. And he sat down. So what keeps a man from spitting, even though there is no sign saying spitting prohibited? Well, my, I'm saying to you, it's grace. Grace in the secondary definition of grace it's the enabling grace of God. And, and I, I believe that Paul explains this in Romans chapter, um, in, in in Romans chapter six, when it says uh, uh, we should not sin uh, because we're not under law, but we're under grace. It's that kind of grace that enables us. To not spit, not sin, even though there's no legal sign that says don't spit here. Does that perhaps help uh, sort of uh, filter through some of the con- this concept of uh, of law and grace? Well, this morning I'm going to be uh, I'm going to be looking at uh, Romans. Uh, <laughs> Galatians chapter four. Galatians chapter four, and, and and I'm entitling my message backwards, not forwards. Ah, that's bad English. Uh, backward, not forward. Um, ha- have you ever have you ever been in a situation where you were walking or climbing? And you were going one step forward, trying to go one step forward, and went two backward. Um, back again, uh, when I was in El Salvador, uh, some distance from where we lived in Sitio del Nilnio was, uh, was, uh, uh, was the Salco, uh, a mountain that was uh, uh, that was basically built from from lava and ashes and that kind and, and rocks and that kind of thing. And uh, if if you wanted to climb the Salco, which was uh, a, a rather steep incline, uh, there was so much loose ash on it that if you had just attempted to climb it, you'd take one step forward and you'd slide back at least a step and maybe two. So the way to climb the Isalco was to cut yourself about a six-foot pole, about an inch around, and, uh, and, and, and with that pole, you could go forward uh, uh, without always sliding back further than what you set forward. And furthermore, when you come down from isalco, it was, uh it was handy because you used that pole and, and put it behind you and you found one of these uh, inclines that was full of loose ash. And you just sort of leaned on the pole and you scooted all the way down to the bottom of the, uh, of, of that, uh, of the mountain. Backwards and not forwards. That's sort of what Paul is describing here in, uh, in Galatians chapter 4. Now before I go to Galatians chapter 4, I'd like to, uh, uh, like to uh, note uh, that the rally cry, the, or should I call it the battle cry of the Reformation in the 15th century was by faith alone. This phrase, by faith alone, was coined by Martin Luther as a result of his study of the book of Galatians. And this phrase, by faith alone, is still the rally cry of the Protestant and the evangelical churches of today, except that they have added to to it by declaring by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone. Well, that's a good statement. <laughs> really, it is. Which, in a sense, agrees with what I have been emphasizing about the basic message of the epistle to the Galatians. In other words, that we are justified by faith in Christ, by virtue of his atoning sacrifice on Calvary without the deeds of the law. That's sort of the basic message that the Apostle Paul is affirming over and over again here in the the book of Galatians. So the phrase, by faith alone," alone, rings true. Except, because Martin Luther... And present-day Protestants believe in the bondage of the will. They believe in sovereign election. And they believe in forensic justification. And they mean something different than I do when I use the phrase by faith alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone, those phrases. They mean something different. By the way, the phrase by faith alone is not found in the book of Galatians, the the exact wording of that, or anywhere else in the New Testament, except... In James chapter 2 and verse 24, after explaining there that Abraham obeyed God when he offered up Isaac on the altar on Mount Moriah, which was in white Jerusalem, he said, yes, yea, see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith alone. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Is there a contradiction to the emphasis of Galatians, the book of Galatians, and what what, uh, James is saying here in James chapter 2? Well, I don't believe there is a contradiction if you understand what James is saying. That's all I want to say about that. But it's important that we understand what James is saying. Well, that was sort of an extended introduction to my sermon. Um, But I I felt a need to clarify uh, a few of those things. So we have in Galatians chapter 4, Paul is still clarifying what happens when when the Galatian Christians attempt to syncretize law and grace. Um, when they mix faith and works as a means of being justified, as a means of being made right with God. So in chapter 4, Paul attempts to uh, redirect the, the Galatians. You see, by accepting the teachings of the Judaizers, the Galatian Christians had turned away from the truth of the gospel. Paul said that in chapter one, and as well as chapter two. Uh, as it had been proclaimed by, to them by Barnabas and himself on their first missionary journey into that area. So now here in chapter four, Paul is attempting again to clarify the issues. Here, Paul takes us back to the, to the central truth of the gospel. And he does so and by resorting to two analogies. Number one, first of all, he gives an analogy in the first 11 verses of chapter 4. Uh, And then he gives a second analogy at the end of chapter 4, as well in verses 21 through 31, to clarify this issue uh, again. He's doing so in a repeated kind of way, but we need to see what he's doing here. Sandwiched in between these two analogies in Romans uh, and Galatians chapter 4, Uh, is a very intense personal appeal by the Apostle Paul from verse 12 through verse 20. Um, Please note that it's it's important to interpret an analogy that we don't attempt to uh, interpret every detail of an analogy but only attempt to get the main gist of the analogy. Uh, It's the same way that you should interpret parables. Unless the parable uh, itself directs us to, we should not attempt to interpret every little detail of a parable, but get the main gist of the parable. Now, uh, so let me turn to Galatians, having said all that, and turn to Galatians chapter 4 and uh, read the first 11 verses in which we find uh, the analogy of adoption. So Galatians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differs nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. There you have it. The adoption of sons. And because your sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. <coughs> Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ, not through the law, through Christ. Howbeit then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, wherein into ye desire again to be in bondage? Isn't that strange? <laughs> how many desire to be in bondage? <laughs> Ye observe days, and months, and times, and years. I'm afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Well, here, as I indicated in, the, in these 11 verses, uh, Paul gives the analogy of, of adoption. Uh, the, uh, now, the analogy of adoption was uniquely used by Paul in three places in his epistles. In Ephesians, in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, the concept of adoption is used to describe a legal, uh, a legal action by which a child that is not born into the family becomes uh, an integral member part of the family to the point where they can inherit uh, along with the other children, Um, along with the natural-born children. uh, They have the right of of inheritance. That's one way that uh, adoption is used by the apostle Paul uniquely in the book of Ephesians. In Romans 8 and here in Galatians 4, Paul uses uh, a, a more unique uh, way of adoption, or uh, yes, uh, it, it's it's the it's the the Roman and the Greek cultural way of adoption. Uh, they had a certain ceremony at a point in a in a, in a child's life, by which the parents. The father, especially, brought their child into a position of sonship. They had been children born into the family, but now they, through a certain, at a certain time and in, in a certain stage of the development of the child, uh, he was brought into to be a son. Um, he, uh, where he entered into a position of sonship, uh, having been under a schoolmaster who tutored and instructed him up to that point. This was referred to as receiving the adoption of sonship. It's a very unique, powerful, loaded term. Verse 4 the adoption of sons. And as you notice in the text, that it is because that when the fullness of time had come that that God sent forth his son, a man of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Well, uh, so herein lies the truth of the gospel that Paul preached. And I would like to make it as simple as I can. This is the all important truth of the message of the gospel and the all important truth of the message of this epistle. God has no natural born sons or children. All coming to the world alienated from God, if you read Romans chapter 5. Sons of Adam, yes. (laughs) Reflecting, fallen Adam, yes. But God has no natural sons, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you need to be spiritually born to be a son. And so Galatians has a different way of saying it than Jesus did in John 3, but in essence he's saying the same thing. God has no natural born sons or daughters all have to receive the adoption of sonship, that can only come through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ and trusting Him in, in Him as as your personal Savior. This is what Paul so carefully explains. Uh, in the what, what God did by sending his son here in Galatians chapter 4. One can only become an heir of God through Christ. He says that, doesn't he? Very specifically. Thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. <laughs> And remember, as I indicated earlier, and I believe in my first message to Galatians, that as soon as you add anything, works of law, legal ceremonies like circumcision, even baptism as a means of salvation, you subtract from what Christ has done. I reiterate, because it's important, folks, that, that the only way to be made right with God, to be in an heir of God, an adjoiner of Jesus Christ, is by way of adoption. When Paul preached this basic truth of the gospel, the self-righteous Jews would respond by saying, "But Paul, we are an exception. <laughs> we are sons of God by virtue of being the descendants of Abraham." And Jesus when they indicated that to him in John chapter 8 said, "You are of your father the devil." <laughs> Wasn't that shocking? remember uh, that uh, the rich young ruler in uh, Mark chapter t- uh, 10, I think it is, uh, It's given in different, uh, uh, different of the Gospels, but I especially like Mark's uh, uh, way of s- uh, telling the story of the rich young ruler. Jesus was uh, busy in ministry and And the rich young ruler comes running up to Jesus in the midst of the crowd and throws himself in front of him on his knees and said, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Folks, that's the most important question any man and woman can ever ask. And Jesus did a surprising thing. He said, well, here's I'm putting this in my own words now. Well, if you want to do something to inherit eternal life, try the commandments. And he said, you know, thou shalt not do this, thou shalt not do that, thou shalt not do that, thou shalt not do that. And the Russian ruler sort of pulled on his labels of his robe and said, I've kept them all. He would have said to Paul, I'm an exception. (laughs) And Jesus, because he knew man, knew what was in man, said to him, by the way, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. The rich young ruler stopped, startled, no doubt, turned the wand, and walked away. Why? Because he was very, very rich. In essence, what Jesus was pointing out to him, you probably have broken most of the commandments, but you have especially broken the last commandment, which is, thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not desire riches. (laughs) Thou shalt have no evil desires. That's what he was reminding him of by, by telling him to go sell everything that he had. And, but he, he couldn't inherit eternal life by doing because he was a sinner. As Paul said, all have sinned. All, all need to come the same way as a, to, to be adopted sons uh, because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And there is no exception. And Paul is saying that here in these first 11 verses of Galatians 4. The uh, Then, as I indicated, uh, in between the first and second uh, portion of chapter 4, uh, Paul then um, uh, speaks very personally to the... Uh, to, to the, the people of, uh, of, uh, of the area of Galatia, to the Galatians. And here in, in verses uh, 12 through 20, he uh, recalls uh, the personal relationship that he had with them in, their first, in, in his first missionary journey. I'm going to read verses 12 through 20. If you want to stand with me as I read. Uh, this section. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this section because I, I believe it's, it's very apparent what Paul is doing here. He, he is really appealing to their sensitivities. So beginning at verse 12, Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as you are. You have not injured me at all. You know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first and my temptation, which was in my flesh, you despise not. The word temptation here uh, should mean trials that I was going through at the time. You didn't, you didn't, uh, you didn't despise me for the trials that I, I, was, uh, I was experiencing. And then he goes on to explain what those trials were. He uh, said... Verse 14, and my temptation, which was in my flesh, you despise not, nor rejected, it, rejected me because of them, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness you spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth, the truth of the gospel. They, they celiously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would have excluded you that you might affect them. But it is good to be celiously affected, always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you. My little children of whom I travail in birth, Again, until Christ be formed in you. I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. And so, you may be seated. And so, here Paul is um, uh, just recounting the relationship that they had with him in that first missionary journey, which you have been studying. In, uh, in your Sunday school classes. Um, you've been learning about the circumstances under which Paul and Barnabas ministered the gospel to the Galatians there. So here Paul is uh, uh, appealing to, the, uh, to, to uh, their sensitivities, and it sort of adds a few things to our understanding of what happened in that first missionary journey that you don't have in the book of Acts. So notice, first of all, that uh, uh, Paul beseeches them as brethren. I think that's important, which means he appeals to them as his equals before the Lord. He, He takes his place as one of them. That's important. He also refers to them as little children in this section to remind them that he was their spiritual father. He birthed them in a sense through the preaching of the gospel before the Lord. And now he is travailing for them (laughs) like a mother giving birth. He is travailing for them that Christ be formed in them again. Well, I, I'm going to leave that, uh, it, it's, a very, it's a very powerful section, and you want to reflect on it. Um, you know, all that Paul uh, explains here uh, sort of adds to our understanding of uh, the relationship between the believers in Galatia and the Apostle Paul. Um, and so, in, in the, uh, you know, we know what happened. We know that he was stoned. Uh, and, uh, and all of that and but but he uh, he, he just recounts how how uh, wonderfully uh, they they responded to him in his ministry to them even during his uh, trials uh, and and really that the trials referred to some physical element it could have been a response of the stoning. It's the only time that Paul was stoned. And I don't know if you can imagine what it's like to be stoned. You know, if I had a a half-pound rock in my hands and and, and, uh, Paul was kneeling there and standing there alone by himself with a crowd of people with rocks in their hands, they weren't going to try to hit his legs or his lower body. They were aiming for his head. They meant to kill him. No, loud, that left scars, might have even ruined his eyesight temporarily. And that's why Paul uh, is saying, uh, you know, you, you were so sensitive to me, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me if they could have. So it's just Paul's way of uh, uh, recounting how, uh, what kind of relationship, reminding them of what kind of relationship uh, he had with then finally, we come to the analogy, the last analogy, which is uh, verse 25 uh, through chapter 5 and verse 1. And I'm going to read that verse, beginning at verse 25. Um, no, beginning at uh, verse 21. Tell me that ye desire to be under the law. Do ye not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one of a, by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. For he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory, there you have it, it's an allegory, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which, gendered, gen, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar or Hagar, For this, Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answers to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. Interesting phrase. For it is written, Rejoice thou, barren, that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that prevailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath a husband. Now we brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as then he was born, he, that was born after the flesh persecuted him, that was born after the spirit. Even so it is now. Nevertheless, that what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Stand fast, therefore in the liberty, wherewith Christ has made you free, and be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage." Did you you understand all that Paul was saying in this this, uh, section? Well, here, in a sense, here you have another analogy. Paul says, he's giving an analogy. Uh, And the the analogy is of the two sons of Abraham. Uh, in this passage. And I I find it difficult to give exposition to this section because Paul so rapidly moves from one metaphor to another in explaining this analogy. But notice two things that will help us understand the analogy. It's uh, important to understand, first of all, the, uh, the question in verse 21 in order to get the gist of what Paul is saying in, in the rest of this section. Verse 21, Paul says, tell me that ye desire to be under the law. Do you hear the law? Uh, here's what I hear Paul asking as, in, in interpreting uh, this, this question. What I hear Paul understand is, uh, asking is, uh, you who desire to be under the law, Do you you understand the implications of being under the law? And Paul, in this section, is, through this analogy, is helping them understand the implications of being under the law. So in in this uh, section, Paul uh, Compares and contrasts three different things. He compares the son of the bond woman with the son of the free woman. Ishmael born of the flesh, Isaac born as a result of the promise of God. And then you have uh, comparing and contrasting the two covenants, verses 24 through 26. The covenant of Mount Sinai and the new covenant that came through Jesus on Calvary. It's implied but not stated. Then you have the two Jerusalems, verses 25, beginning of verse 25. The earthly Jerusalem, which is uh, correlates co-relate, to Mount Sinai, and, uh, and, the, uh, and the Jerusalem that is from below, which is in bondage, he says, but he, he, so he, he uh, com- contrasts and compares the Jerusalem that is from below with the Jerusalem that is from above, which is the mother of us all. <laughs> Again, that's such an interesting statement. Um, and, and may I add, because it is uh, insinuated here uh, when he says the mother of us all, the mother of us all who are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. The implication of all this, taking both analogies into consideration, the first one, first part of the chapter, the last one, the last part of the chapter. Still with me? By accepting the teaching of the Judaizers, by accepting this pseudo-gospel that they preached, False gospel. Another gospel, Paul calls it. He's saying to the Galatian believers, by accepting that false gospel, you are identifying yourself with the son of the bond woman instead of the son of the free woman. You're identifying yourself with Ishmael instead of Isaac. Furthermore, you're identifying yourself with the first covenant, Mount Sinai, instead of the, 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 the second covenant or the covenant of the New Testament, uh, Mount Calvary. And furthermore, you're identifying with yourself with Jerusalem on earth, which is in bondage with her children, instead of Jerusalem, which is from above, which is free. In other words... Let me bring you back to the title of my message in closing. You're going backwards and not forwards. Instead of doing what Paul said in Philippians 3.14, when Paul said, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, you are regressing back. To your former status, you're regressing instead of progressing. You're regressing to be in bondage under the elements of the world, verse 3, instead of taking your place as adopted sons. You're being servants again instead of being heirs of God. You're being entangled again in the yoke of bondage instead of standing fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free. Chapter 5 and verse 1. So Paul was bringing the issue to them very forcefully and powerfully. I would ask in closing, I want you to think about it. Is it important what we believe? Is it important what we believe? We better believe it. Because what we truly believe affects our relationship with God and how we experience life. That comes through very forcefully in Galatians chapter 4. God bless you as you meditate and think about these things. Don't go backwards. (laughs) Go forward in Christ, knowing that it is by faith in him that you're made right with God through his atoning sacrifice. Stand, Lord, I want to thank you for this important message from Galatians chapter 5, 4. I pray, Lord, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, with your word, drive it deep within our hearts so that we don't slide backwards, but we move forward as adopted sons of heirs, as heirs and joined heirs with Jesus Christ. Lord, fill us with that reality.